this is a real adventure. Uh, always feels as though I can't hear me. So I'd like not to have to speak any louder. Anyway, I feel a little crazy right now, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and, and it reminds me of uh, that a way that you may be appreciating after, I guess, their fourth full day of practice. It's a passage from a wonderful teacher named Bhante Gunaratna who says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come to the realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, out of, out of control, completely hopeless or helpless. No problem. <laughs> Don't worry about this. It's no different than it was yesterday. You just didn't notice. So it's a, it's a, a big deal to, to open our hearts and minds to to the, the madness that, that plays through. But it is a particularly unique human characteristic that our uh, craziness, our difficulties, are only humans seem to be able to turn our difficulties into wisdom, into love, into healing, into, uh, into awakening. And if I look back at my, my practice over the years, I would say the, the things that are hard to bear, the, my inner critic, which I used to have a, an intense inner critic, and I can say with a lot of confidence that it will pop up from time to time, but there is a, a default um, kindness that comes, a, a default caring that comes, now, whenever that uh, it comes to the rescue, in a way, and it's not because uh, there perhaps is any. Well, there is a lessening of the, the inner critic is pretty quiet, but when it comes, because I have felt it, because I've experienced it, let it uh, let it cut more deep. You know that poem that Jack shared on the first night. He said uh, from Hafiz, where he says. Uh, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine ingredients can. The line he left out at the end, which I just want to add tonight for my own reasons, he says, after you've, it's, you've let that be felt, he says, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. So it has been through opening to the difficulties, through the, all the various insecurities and the inner critic and the judgments and, the, and the, uh, the, the endless changing conditions that my heart, and I assume your heart, uh, will be tenderized and your eyes already over the course of these days uh, look more uh, soft and your voices when you come into the into the interviews are more tender. And this is simply, this is the magic of being human, that the cure for pain is in the pain. And that's why I think that the, that the Buddha's first 
the Buddha's first teaching was stress, it's stressful to be here. And his prescription for dealing with it is open to it. Let it cut more deep. So it's the same with the, with the hindrances that Noah spoke about last night. We make that shift from simply being carried along by what I love the way that you described it as being normal, carried along by that wanting mind, that, that uh, the, the, the sense in our mind that, that uh, whatever I'm experiencing is not sufficient, uh, that, that I am that I feel when I'm, of course, in the, in the, uh, when I'm clouded by this wanting mind, when, I'm, when I don't see it, I am absolutely convinced that the present is not a place where I can find relief. And it is only by, by getting something, by uh, having something, or connecting with someone, having a VR, or the opposite, the VV, and this this feeling, this feeling of lack, which is, I, Leela translated hindrance as lack. This feeling of lack, when it goes unnoticed, when it goes unnoticed, it spawns that whole internal drama, this profound drama of lack and insufficiency. And we can literally wander a long time in that imaginary world with ourselves, the imagined me as the central character, who's, who's moved from the, from the past, which really doesn't exist, is passing through this very tumultuous, unsatisfying present on my way to the future when things will really get good. <laughs> and when we realize, when we stop, we realize that uh, the future will never arrive because time is always and only now. So, with, so innocently, because we may have an experience of pleasant feeling, it's so innocent, the way that whole world, thought world, is constructed. If we don't see it, that a, a little moment of pleasure is followed by liking. And this is the beauty of practice, is we can begin to track this. We can begin to see the very construction project of ourselves, how that happens moment to moment. A little, a pleasant moment, I think Noah said, somebody socks. Some, you know, I actually did have a Vipassana romance that started with someone's socks, believe it or not. <laughs> I can still remember her. And they, <laughs> and, they were, and they were orange, which I thought was very cool. But it didn't stop there. I literally took birth into that fantasy 
and I nurtured it and literally carried it for three months. Unfortunately, when I walked up to that person at the end of the retreat, thinking that they must have recognized me too, they were completely oblivious to me. And yet I had gone through that entire period in a state of suspended happiness. <laughs> My sense of well-being postponed until that moment of, of meeting and just everything that Noah described last night. The beauty of our practice is that we not only not only are able to see that process, but we can begin, especially if we are tracking moment to moment that hindrance as it's felt through our body, the wanting mind. We, instead of building a monument to the imagined future, and then being in that state of anxiety and worry about whether I will actually get who I want or get where I want. Instead, we feel, we take our attention, we withdraw or expand our, our attention beyond the story of the um, wanting mind. And we feel it in our body. And when you feel a state of wanting, even though the image was associated with all kinds of pleasure, you feel that the underlying experience is of lack, of, of saying, I'm not okay. And you are slowed down enough to be able to begin to do that. And if you do that, you will feel the, perhaps the unpleasantness that becomes the seed cause of so much wandering, the unpleasant feeling of lack, that because it wasn't felt, it produced dislike, and that dislike produced, it created a kind of internal pressure. When you don't like something, we tighten up. Have you noticed when you're in a state of aversion? Tighten up, and that, for lack of a better word, that energy has to go somewhere. And where does it usually go? It goes right into that, what the Buddha called papancha, into proliferation, into that construction project of the whole world of fantasy of where, where I'm going. Now, if, if, if I wasn't practicing, I would simply wander a long time confused because that's what I've been taught to do. So all of this is quite innocent. I've been taught to continually be in a state of, of longing. I've been taught my identity has formed, your identity, our identity has been formed around the sense of what I have to have to be happy. Now, the interesting thing is that whole story of what I want to be happy describes someone, especially the story of it, it describes someone who doesn't exist. It describes someone who, an imaginary version of you. Yet when it goes unnoticed, that little story seems so utterly real and it 
and within that story, there's such conviction that whatever that desire is or whatever has to be gotten rid of has to be fulfilled in order to fulfill the life plan of, of the imagined me. And the truth is, well, I like that this is what I, like, I think of when I talk about this. Nothing happened. No one went anywhere. We were right here all the time. So that one that we imagine in that state of, of desire, that we are born into it, of course, our body forms around that. And when, of course, if I'm in that little, if my, if I'm in that little mind bubble, my body gets quite tense, quite shaky, quite fearful, quite worried, and it spawns more hindrances. And then, of course, multiple hindrances. The multiple, what we call the multiple hindrance attack. Wanting, then not wanting, then agitation, worry, restlessness, then exhaustion, and then doubt. And they just, they, they take off together. And all of it in a, an imaginary world of an imaginary you. The beauty of practice is not only can you feel that, have that, bless, that tremendous blessing of just feeling desire as desire, wanting as wanting. Expand beyond the story, feeling in the body. Okay, if I can, if, if there's, if wanting, if I experience wanting, it's achy, as I said before, there's a kind of, uh, there's a feeling of lack. But what happens when we settle back, as Jack put it, into that space of awareness and feel a feeling of desire. What happens to it? What is its nature? Of course, we see that that feeling is just a weather front. It is a changing, it changes like the weather. You can't even hold on to it. And it becomes clear that it is a, what we often call a selfless process. It's happening all by itself. And as meditators, we can see that this, whatever this is, and whatever story came from it, is not me, is not mine. In the meantime, that very experience that when unnoticed spawned that endless wandering, if I have to, I'm reminded of another story. I sometimes tell this story as though it was somebody else, but I'll admit tonight that it was me. <laughs> when I hadn't been, hadn't, I, it was at a three month practice period, but I still had not studied to any great extent the, uh, the, the wanting mind and the, and the sense of identity. So I didn't realize the extent that innocently the ident my identity, which the Buddha called Sakaya Dittis, uh, which is just a view, an idea, an uh, uh, identity is just an, a sense of yourself. It's an idea of yourself. And as an idea of yourself, it, it can't really fully capture you. 
Like there's not one person here that could be captured in an in a idea of self, which is, I think, um, good news. Because out, as Rumi put it, out beyond all our ideas about ourselves, ideas of right doing and wrong doing, which is often what a lot of our identity is tied up in, right and wrong, measuring how high, how low, out beyond that, there's a, there's a field. And when we kind of step out of that, those ideas of self for a moment, or just see them for what they are, there's often a, a feeling of quiet. And as one teacher, Nisargadatta, put it, if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with, with a light and a love you've, you've never known, but you recognize it at once. As, that's who I am. That's me. So that idea of me is not me. That idea of me is a story. It's a story forged by experience, by sometimes by trauma, sometimes by our, uh, our, our bodies, our shape, our size, our race, our religion. It's shaped by conditions, but yet no matter how useful, how much it, it gives us a, a, a designation for a place of belonging, a place of, a way of, of describing ourselves, it is still an insult to, the in, to your immediate and indescribable nature, which can never be captured in a thought or an idea. So an idea of yourself is not yourself. As one of our teachers, Anagarika Munindra, put it, and maybe this is more accessible for you, he said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Anyhow, in describing how, how each of us, in our own way, fall into a case of mistaken identity, believing, taking that one that we imagine in our thoughts to be who we are. I, I, I'm, I'll go back to the story. When I realized that the way, the way uh, my mind stream or my conditioning was, I lived, I grew up in the heartland of the US in Nebraska. And quite innocently, by osmosis, I became identified with my identity view got tethered to the state's football team. <laughs> and as an identity, there is a, an, endless, an endless need because it's tethered to ideas. It's tethered to uh, circumstances. It's tethered to the past, which is gone, the future, uh, to the future, which it hasn't happened. Any identity has to be maintained. It has to be fed. It has to be, um, it has to be defended. It has to be built up. What happens, and we often, if I don't have that, who am I? If I let go of, of who I thought I was. Initially, there's a sense of, well, well who am I? If I'm not my, my identity. 
So innocently, I got very connected to, the, uh, because there's often pleasure in having a sense of identity. And I got very identified with being a, a football fan. Now this started very young, because it's, in Nebraska, the only thing there is is football. <laughs> So how karma comes home to roost in the middle of a three-month retreat, sitting quietly, getting to be close to Thanksgiving. I'm about 25 years old or so. And the thought arises, I, just a little I thought, I would love to be able to see the Thanksgiving rivalry game. I want to watch that football game. <laughs> and that thought, if that thought had been noticed, you know, it's so interesting. I always think of Dujim Rinpoche, he says, after your last thought has ceased, and before the next arises, is there not a, a vivid clarity? Is it not true that after that last thought has ceased and before the next one comes, everything is fine? <laughs> there is no evidence for any of us that we're not okay. If we don't consult our memory, if we don't consult our plans. Everything's granted. I'll get back to the story, but it, remind, it reminds me. Hafiz, I promised Noah that I would pepper the talk with poetry tonight. <laughs> some like the poetry, some don't. Hafiz said, He said, what do people who are sad have in common? They have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? To not be so religious like that. <laughs> and I wrote a, my own verse for the, for the other side. What do people who are worried or anxious have in common? They have all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? To not be so religious like that. Now, it's not not to have those thoughts. We are, we are thought machines. But we can make that shift from, from, being care, but from going to, uh, to building a shrine to the past or the future and, and going there and doing a strange uh, wail and worship. We can go from being absorbed in it to knowing, oh, that's a thought of the past. That's a thought of the future. That's, a, that's the wanting mind, as, as Noah. And the one who, who is being born in that wanting mind is just an imaginary version of me. That is just the personality view playing out its drama of trying to get what it wants. So unfortunately, I built a shrine to the future. And the tension 
of that wanting mind spawned this ongoing conversation, which I engaged the, the teacher at the time in. Should I or shouldn't I? And, and unfortunately, there was a person who had been sitting the retreat who, was, who had come out of retreat and was caring for his partner who was at the retreat who had gotten pregnant. And he was helping her during her pregnancy. So he was just hanging around the hallways and he overheard some of my interviews and wrote me a note and volunteered to drive me to watch the football game. <laughs> so this is, this is craziness. And this is such a mild version of craziness. But it, the list is endless about how far, um, how far we can go. This is what, uh, and we're taught to do this. We're taught to organize our identity around what I want to happen. That's why another, uh, I think it's Rumi, in one of his poems said, um, failure is the key to the king or queendom within. Your prayer should be break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. We exhaust our mind. It's some, one of my teachers said that the purpose of meditation is to exhaust our mind, too. So that we stop going out in search. That we settle back into that open field of, of awareness and realize that, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, we are exactly as we are what we're looking for. And that it is a, it is a, a kind of uh, delusion that, that we are entranced by our ideas of lack, our ideas of ourselves, into this uh, state of, of um, suspended happiness, of perpetual wandering, of perpetual waiting and hoping. And so the beauty of practice is we, we stop and we notice, oh, this is, this is, this is uh, wanting, or this is pleasure, or this is unpleasant, or this is a feeling of lack. At whatever point we catch our experience, whatever point we wake up to where we are, at that moment, the chain that usually sends us into that world of an, our imaginary selves, the, the very state of mind that spawns all of that drama, brings us right back home to the place we never left. That's where, to reality, to, which is always close. It's in full view. And yet our mind will continually say, I am somebody who has, who's come from back there, and I'm going to get through here as fast as I can so I can get there. And that whole construction of self through the construction of time is, is a story, is a dream of somebody who doesn't even exist. Now, it's not to say you don't exist. You're all here in full living color. You are as, as Mama Suryadas says, you are beautiful. <laughs> you are each person, so amazing. Awesome. We've talked about it over the course of the retreat, all the 
the, the miraculousness of Jack talking about the, our bodies and feeding them and, and just our minds and, and the, our capacity to spawn so much fantasy and, and drama when, in fact, there's only six things that ever happen. Our, the totality of our life is six experiences. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, coming and going, and yet somehow, completely unprompted, that simple unfolding present, the only reality there is, somehow spawns this, this view, this version of events, this version of ourselves that constructs the whole sense of time. And if it goes unnoticed, we can wander a long time confused. This is how Sogyal Rinpoche put it in terms, of, in terms of usually spawning desire. But you can think in terms of, of, of spawning anything, of our mind spinning out in, in our plans to become the great meditator, become a Buddhist, or some of you may have already decided to become a Hindu after sitting for a few days, whatever it is. <laughs> but this particular piece is about how, how our culture encourages us to keep this spin going. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is the, it means endless wandering. This brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration that all, of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So this is a little bit hard hitting, but it, it speaks to the, the, all the various ways that our mind projects a sense of well-being dependent on things being other than they are, and how our identity gets formed. And one of the other, and the beauty of practice is we can watch that in, in action, and literally cut right to the root of it and see a thought of desire is just a thought. A thought of myself is just a thought. 
The feeling that goes with that is a strong feeling, but it's a feeling nevertheless. And is ultimately not me, not mine. This I am not. This is cannot, my identity cannot be captured in a changing condition. Where is it now? Where is that, where is that version of myself that needed to go to a football game? It seems ridiculous now. Another way that the, that the Sakaya Ditti, the self-view, the view about ourself, arises in our mind, and we will include all of this in the instruction tomorrow, partly why we're talking about it tonight, is, the, um, is perhaps one of the, the most insidious <laughs> and tormenting and insulting forms, and that is the form of the thoughts and feelings that we sometimes call pride, but the Buddha called it mana or conceit. And conceit and pride in the, in the context of the teachings is nothing more than the comparing mind. The mind that creates a version of you that is measurable, that says I am better than, I am equal to, or I'm less than called Atimana, Mana, and Amana. Now, I look around this room, and there's not a person here that when you look, when you feel the immediacy of your experience, when I look at you and I feel you when we're all together, I can't even find a dividing line between us when we're really very present together. But what's What's just as clear is there's no, there is no evaluation of high or low or equal or above, below that could ever capture what's here. And yet, our mind is continually in that state of measuring, that habit of measuring. Now, that person who is measurable, the person who is above another, or equal to another, or less than another, better yogi, worse yogi, more enlightened yogi, less enlightened yogi, that one doesn't even exist. Again, doesn't mean you don't exist, but that, that little story that's, that's comparing, it's just the comparing mind. When it's noticed, it just shows itself as another expression arising in awareness, no, not separate from the nature of the mind. It's a comparing thought, pretty innocuous on one hand. But if it goes unrecognized, it, as Dujam Rinpoche said, he, you know, after he said, after your last thought and before your next one, isn't there that vivid clarity? He says, but isn't it true that another th a thought quickly arises? He says, if you notice it, it's just another thought arising, no big deal. But if it goes unnoticed, it spreads out into ordinary thinking. And this he called the chain of delusion.
So we literally incarnate again into that imagined version of ourselves, and then we feel it in our body. We feel terrible. And, it, and all of us have practiced this from day one. We have practiced. We've been told we were better than, less than, or equal to. This is innocent conditioning. It doesn't mean you're bad. How many of you are judging yourself for so much comparing? Anybody? <laughs> First, I think when you do that, see who it is that you're judging. What is it that you're referring to? Isn't it true that those, those comparisons just come? This is something we can see in our practice. But what they have left in all of us, in perhaps all human beings, because it is, so, uh, it is so much a natural part of our developmental process to form some sense of being unique and different, which we are anyway. But that, that gets elaborated on as, a, as the view about ourselves. And because of view, is inherently, because it's tethered to, in many cases, it's tethered to our bodies, which are, they're not very um, secure. They, they're changing all the time. They don't cooperate. Sometimes they feel good. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're healthy. Sometimes they get sick. You can't tell them, as Jack often says, you can't tell them not to get old. <laughs> calls them, he calls them rent, he calls these rent-a-body. Sorry, I hope you didn't mind me borrowing it. <laughs> so that idea, and often a lot of comparison, is to the body because our, we have this strong identification with the body. One of the things that happened to the Buddha when he sat under the Bodhi tree is he saw that this body was not even a body. It was just a lot of changing sensations. And it was doing its own thing. And it was one of the things that cut through his, uh, this, helped him see through the, the self-illusion. There's no self to be found in this body. And also the comparing mind, identity is tethered to time. And especially when we're measuring, it's often time-bound. Am I going to catch up to that person or am I going to catch up to my ideal? And, and then the thing about time Conventional time, it's always running out. <laughs> so it produces a lot of anxiety. And because it's tethered to ideas, ideas are, are um, so ephemeral, we, it leaves a legacy of insecurity. Uh, we all feel somewhat insecure, easily shaken. And, and pride, when we think we're better than. I pride myself on thinking that I'm sensitive. And even on this retreat, I said something that was completely insensitive. And I was seen as having said it. And whoever I imagined myself to be just crumbled in the face of that humiliation, really. And it reminded me that this house, I call it the house that ego built, 
is a house of cards. It is, it is inherently insecure and leaves us often because of this case of mistaken identity. It leaves us shaking like leaves. And what do we normally do? Innocently, what, how do we deal with that? We go shopping. <laughs> or we, more often than not, get angry, plan our revenge. Or we withdraw, tighten up, and then it reinforces the sense that I exist apart from the whole. And then we walk around like it's stated in the Bhagavad Gita, like we are the one wave that's got se gotten separated from the ocean. And then we have to find our way back home. So our habit is to not feel that rawness, that vulnerability, the, the, the ephemeralness of these views, these comparisons. But but rather, um, we tend to go out. Instead, what we do in our practice is we let ourselves feel it. Let those feelings be held in that loving awareness, absorbed in that ground of attention, that immediacy. And those feelings, just like loneliness, that poem states, those feelings tenderize our hearts. They root us. They, they help us see that, that life has stress. And that what increases it is my desire for it to be other than that. And we find actually in that moment a cessation, an end of stress. It, it stops when we, when we just surrender. And if we keep this up, we... We don't have to be afraid of anything. We can even crash and burn and know that, that, uh, that it's workable. As I discovered you know, in my little small vignette, and I've only discovered it a, a million times. But part of it is to have, keep a sense of humor about how crazy we are. It's partly why I started with the poem on craziness. It's to notice how our pride and our conceit, our comparing mind, how it has no, it has no limits. It will take anything that happens in your experience here and build an identity around it, build, make you special. Even an experience of, of openness or emptiness, which could not be any less personal, becomes my emptiness. I'm more empty than you. I've got to read you a little story. This is the extent to which the, the quicksand of, of trying to be, trying to, uh, to create an identity around something that's so insubstantial, uh, how this gets, has, knows no bounds. This is from this is a, a story about, in, this was from, from 2002. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence 
on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who once wrote four minutes and 33 seconds, which means in parentheses is 273 seconds of silence. His representatives of his estate threatened to sue the group <laughs> for ripping Cage off but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds <laughs> it, it thought had been pilfered. Said Mike, this is where it comes, said Mike Bat of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> And then the, the, how our minds will torment ourselves by comparing our life and our practice to an ideal, to notions. You know, one of the four great attachment that the Buddha talked about was, uh, views, and, was views and opinions, ideas, uh, rites and rituals. So we tend to get really caught up in how we're supposed to do things and whether we're what a good meditator looks like or what a spiritual person looks like. And that's one of the places that we incarnate in that imaginary version of ourselves. And we can notice that. And with all of these, the insecurity that accompanies them, it has to be, we have to meet it with one, a sense of humor and so much love and caring because it's also innocent. So this is the, the humor part of it. This is an anonymous poem called Inner Strength. Many of you have heard this before, speaking of the comparing to an ideal. If you can start the day without caffeine or other stimulants, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can relax without alcohol. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs. If you can do all these things, then you are probably the family dog. So it's, uh, I find it quite useful to explore those hidden comparisons we're making to an ideal and how we hold ourselves to an impossible standard and then find ourselves forever, forever not measuring up and then feeling really insecure, not enough, insufficient. When as we practice, we see that there's in real time There's no evidence for it. So that we have to see the difference between the stories our mind plays, the views of ourselves, and what our direct experience is. 
As James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So I, I speak about this tonight because I, I think that it's uh, the time of the retreat where you can begin to, um, to develop um, confidence in yourself as you are. Not the idea of yourself but the immediate and direct experience of yourself. And that you can <clears throat> come out of the tangle of, of fear, and thinking, and as Rumi puts it, live in silence and flow down in, as he says, in ever-widening rings of being. He says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of that tangle. So we're, what we're doing now is we're continuing that process of making a shift from being simply carried along, as we have been, literally for perhaps lifetimes, carried along by that stream of delusion and simply noticing, oh, a thought of self is not myself. It's a thought. There's the comparing mind. There's the judging mind. There's insecurity, the effects of all that. And we use, this is equal opportunity, mindfulness. Everything gets used to remind us of our love of being just as we are, right where we are. And I can already tell that the, um, that the present is becoming a little bit more, and direct reality, direct experience is becoming a little more compelling and your desire to be somewhere else is diminishing a little bit. So sink into it. Get used to it. Stabilize it. Because there really is no path to enlightenment. The, the path is simply moment to moment, brushing the dust of memory, clearing. Enlightenment is always ever-present. But it gets obscured by confusion. By greed in the mind. The Buddha talked about it as three poisons. Greed in the mind, hatred in the mind, and delusion. The delusion of thinking that we are not okay. And all the ways that we think uh, we somehow have to be different, have to be somewhere, become someone. This is what the great uh, meditation Master Nagarjuna said, this is what happens uh, with our minds and what's possible when we stop. He says, blocked by confusion, I survive forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds, the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, 
senses, and the world. It leads to experience I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free, to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. And I'll end with a a poem from Derek Walcott about the ending of anguish. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings live with ease. So you have about uh, 35 minutes to enjoy your comparing mind, <laughs> to stay where you are, to be mindful in, your, in the transition, in your Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.